Hello folks, good morning. Welcome to the fellowship. Excited to be here with you guys. Um, so this morning we have as our text one of the greatest Christological passages in Scripture. Um, if you have your Bibles, I would like for you to turn to Philippians chapter 2 or your digital device, whatever you might be using for Scripture. Of course, you know we'll have the Scripture on the screens, but I think there's just something to having all of these verses together in front of you. Um, I didn't look and see what page it was on the Bibles we have to back, whatever. But Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 5 through 11. Um, we have a lot to cover this morning. I'm very, this t- I'm very excited about this text, about this sermon, um, but I'm also extremely intimidated by it because I don't, I don't want to mess it up. Um, this is just, it's really good um, stuff here, and I'm just full disclosure. I don't want to mess this up, so um, pray for me as we get into this. But let's uh, let's read, and then. Um, then I'll give like a bit of a framework through which we can understand the, the context of all this. So, uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It says, You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on of sorry, even death on a cross. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this text. I thank you for Paul writing this to the Philippian church and um, us having it today to look at and and see um, about your nature, uh, to see this example you gave for us to follow and um, to imitate. And I pray that uh, we will be changed people because of this. We pray all this to your glory and your, may you be glorified through this. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So this whole section of scripture, it really starts back in Philippians 1, 27, and, and it goes through chapter 2, verse 18. Um, and you remember back a few weeks ago, we, we talked about this. 127 says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Um, and you might remember from a sermon a couple weeks ago, that, or from the sermon a couple weeks ago, that that, you know, conduct yourselves in a manner is... Paul saying, "Be a good citizen, or or live as citizens um, in this in this way." And so, um, namely, he's saying having the mindset or attitude set of living as citizens of heaven. So that's how we should view this: that we should be citizens of heaven. And then the rest of it, through um, really verse five, is all about unity. And then we get into verse five, and it talks about this is the encouragement for how we should be unified. Verse 5 is that encouragement. And really, verse 5 is the sermon this morning, and 6 through 11 is just the text for the example of, or the illustration for how we should, how we should what, what Christ's example that he gave for us, what, how we should follow. And so, um, you know, that's, that's basically the, the context here. And, uh, you know, 
the church at Philippi, as we've talked about, didn't have a ton of problems, um, like especially like other churches that Paul wrote to. But they were uh, disunified. They didn't have unity. And Paul knew, as as John says in, or as Jesus says in John chapter thirteen, records it, that um, the having disunity is going to not, you know, it's going to come across as not loving, not being a loving church. And so he knew that they needed to have this love. John thirteen thirty four and thirty five says, "I give you a new commandment to love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Everyone will know." By this, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So having a disunified church doesn't send a message of love, right? And so Paul knew that, and so he was, you know, encouraging them greatly to be unified because that's going to further the gospel, and they're, you know, they are sharing and participating, they're in the fellowship of the gospel, and that was his whole thing is he wanted them to continue to expand the gospel. And so we have in verse 5 our sermon. It said, you know, all of one through four is the text of this is how you need to be unified, you need to be like-minded, and all this. And then chapter or verse five, he gets down, and he says, you should have the same attitude toward toward one another that Christ Jesus had. Um, so specifically, verse two, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind or being like-minded. And then verse five, he says, you want to be like-minded, be like-minded with the same mind that Christ had. So. Share the, the same mind that Christ had. And 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24 speaks of the attitude that Christ had. It says, For to this you were called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was maligned, he did not answer back. When he suffered, he threatened no retaliation, but committed himself to God who judges justly. He himself bore our sins, in his body on the tree, that we may con- that we may cease from sinning and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. So he didn't push away from any of the, you know, the the hurt and the torment and the, you know, the retaliation, the suffering that was coming his way. He didn't push away from any of that. He he took it on. He bore our sins. Um, you know, he was he committed no sin, but. He didn't have, and he didn't have deceit in his found in his mouth. Verse twenty-two says, um, "But he bore our sins, and by his wounds we are healed." Uh, verse five and the New King James it doesn't word it exactly like I use the new the new new English translation, the Net Bible. Um, the New King James says, "Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." Uh, my translation says, "You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had." So it's all about our attitude or our mindset. Um, and we were discussing that. We were discussing that, and for verse two, having be of the same mind as Paul says in verse two, that that mindset or attitude set, our attitude should be this way. This is our outlook toward the world, toward one another, is having this mind of Christ, as he's following up here. So let this mind be in you. There's a lot of discussion here of, you know, what is what is the proper interpretation of this? What should this should it be? Let this mind be in you. Um, as though it's you know an option that we get to choose, right? Um, the New English translation, the way it puts it, you should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. So this is like a emphatic statement saying this is how you should be, almost an imperative statement. 
um, versus let this mind be in you. Like we get to choose that or whatever. Um, but you know, this having unity is it's a necessary thing for the Christian. We must be unified as believers. Um, we it's not just imperative for us as far as you know being unified shows that we love one another, and that's going to show to the world around us that we are you know Christ's disciples, um, Jesus' disciples. But it's also it's essential for our Christian walk to faithfully live daily. We have to live lives of, of unity. Um, so Paul is he's calling the saints at Philippi and really in, in every place and every time to a daily lifestyle of, of vigilance, of maintaining a Christ-centered life. Um, and in this, you know, it can be easily eroded as the hymn "Count the Count," sorry, "Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings" says. And I'm sure you're familiar with this if you grew up in church, whatever. But it says, uh, and this is going to be hard for me to read this and not try to sing it, but trust me, you don't want me to try to sing it. It says, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wondering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it for thy courts above. Seal it, seal it for thy courts above. And so, you know, we we often we are prone to wonder. That's that's the that's the gear that we want to go, right? We, we're bent that way to want to to wonder. Um, so we need God to come in and take and seal our hearts in. And the way we can do that best is to be unified together as as a body of believers. Um, there is something to the other view, the let this mind be in you view as well. So having this mind interpretation um, because it is us choosing for ourselves this attitude and um, you know when you voluntarily choose something then typically you're more invested in it right you're more you're more on board you're more part of that thing if you voluntarily choose something Um, some people refer to this as the ethical interpretation being in Christ means that we should walk after him Um, and you know, on top of that, the book of Philippians is a book of imitation. Paul, is, Paul gives us Christ here as this imitation later on. He gives us Epaphroditus and Timothy as people that we should follow after as examples. Um, and, you know, obviously Christ is a great example. So um, however you look at it, I think um, either way you want to look at this, our sanctification hinges on us following after Jesus. And so we should have that mindset after him. We should do this. Um, it should be something that we we do. And we should not just, well, I guess I shouldn't say we should not just, but it's not just about having setting our minds toward Christ, but sharing, that should be our, our the way we treat one another as believers is um, through this attitude that Christ had. And we'll, and we'll look at that. But that's, I mean, that's basically our sermon. This is the text. Um, and the rest of this is just, Illustration. So, uh, but this is a great illustration, I'll say. Um, so, the text here in Philippians, uh, many refer to this as like the humiliation of Christ. Um, it's the great kenosis passage, and we'll look at what that means. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a passage that um, gives us tons of tons of tons of doctrine just in these few verses here. And uh, some have referred to this as the, the- theology of Christmas. So you think about all that Christmas entails. This is the theology of Christmas. There's a diagram. There it is. So you can see this is sort of a U-shaped or a V-shaped diagram. So this is um, 
Christ's humiliation is there's the renunciation, the incarnation, the crucifixion, and that's him coming down incarnate to earth and then going back up through to his exalted position where he's going to have adoration and confession. And so there's humiliation and then where he comes down and then exaltation where he goes up. And we'll look at that. Verses 6 through 8 is humiliation and then verses 9, 10, and 11 is the exaltation. Um, and this is this has some Jonah-esque qualities to it. Um, we're gonna let's just look, just jump in here. So with Jonah, there's a bunch of down, 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 and a bunch of up, up, up. So let's look at that. So Jonah one one through three, it says, "Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me." Says, but Jonah arose, so he did get up, because verse 2, the word of the Lord says to Jonah, Arise and go to Nineveh. Jonah does arise, he says, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Tarshish, I can't say that word good. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And then, you know, you know the storm came, and the mariners got all worried about what was happening and they were afraid they found where do they find Jonah he's down in the bottom of the ship and then the lower parts of the boat after some convincing because Jonah knows the storm is because he is fleeing from the presence of God and in the direction God told him to go so after some convincing it took Jonah to convince the mariners to throw him overboard they throw him overboard he goes down into the sea eventually down into the belly of the fish um, but once Jonah prayed in the belly of the fish, God caused the fish to throw Jonah up onto the shore. Up onto the shore, Jonah went up to that great city of Nineveh. And, you know, so we see this here too as well with, with Christ coming down to earth and then going back up, up, up within his exaltation. The only difference here is Jonah went down, down, down in disobedience um, and Christ went down, down, down in his obedience. Um, and then God exalted Jesus when he gave him the name of every name, verse 9 through 11. So let's jump in, look at verse 6 here. It says, Who though he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. Uh, we're going to kind of break this down, and I'm going to try to make it as concise as we can, but we'll see. So, um, so this is speaking of Christ's renunciation. Remember the the diagram, right? Christ's renunciation. So that basically just means his willing, he willingly gave something up. So he, renun he renounced something. And we'll look at that in a bit. But this is Christ's renunciation. He existed in the form of God, did not regard it equality with God as something to be grasped. Um, and so what does it mean that he, who, though he existed in the form of God? Um, this, is discuss this is talking about the pre-existent Christ. So we believe as Christians... There's never been a time when Christ wasn't. He's pre-existent. He, he always was, right? Um, eight, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, he became poor for your sake, so that you, by his poverty, could become rich. Um, this sets Christianity apart from a lot of other religions and cults. The pre-existent Jesus. Um, Mormons don't believe this. A lot of other... Um, Religions and cults and things don't believe that Jesus pre-existed. They think there's a time when 
he became something when he when he was maybe when he came to earth or whatever different people believe different things but Christians believe in the pre-existent Christ um, so and he's in the form of God so this word form here um, although he existed in the form of God that is uh, morphe or morph we get our word metamorphosis from from this but this is not an external appearance there's two words that Paul could have used here for form right and he uses an, another word for form somewhere where it's translated uh, looking like other men at the end of verse 7 but he uses that word there but when he uses the word form here um, it's not talking about outward external appearance or outward shape but it's like the, the actual being of the person his his internal nature of Jesus um, and the word is used again in verse 7 where it says by taking the form of a slave so we have it here he did not uh, he it, who though he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. So he existed in the form of God, and then verse 7, by taking the form of a slave. So in the incarnation when he came. So this speaks to both his divinity and his humanity. He's truly God and truly man. And then it says, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. This is one of the biggest theological truths in all of scripture this did not regard equality with God um, this statement here um, the New King James Version says did not consider robbery to be equal with God the word robbery um, that that word originally meant that it meant like taking something from somebody and then it became known it, it, tra it translate transferred into being something to be hold on to grab a hold of or to hold on to like I think of like a purse 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 uh, purse snatcher somebody is grabbing the purse right they're they're grabbing something they're they're robbing you of it and so um this uh this idea this concept that he was in the form of god did not regard equality with god as something to be grasped um we we get a lot of we get a lot of theological truths from this um first back in the council of nicaea i'm sure you remember that you learned all about that and elementary school or whatever, I don't know. But uh, 325 A.D., they came together. They had the Council of Nicaea because there was a guy named Arius that was preaching uh, falsehoods. He was teaching that, uh, it's, we call this the Arian controversy. He was denying the deity of Christ. So they got that settled. They, they settled that 325 A.D. Um, Athanasius was the guy who his views prevailed. He won out the day. And so we settled Jesus was, in fact, God. So that was good, right? Well, then people started denying his humanity. Well, okay, we'll give it to you. Jesus is God, but what about his humanity? And there's actually like five or six different um, heresies, false teachings that rose up. And so in 451 AD, we had the Council of Chalcedon, and that settled. Just in that one statement, that settled all these other heresies and that one thing and so they they proved the humanity of Christ in that some were denying the humanity of Christ but the Council of Chalcedon affirmed it so what we call this um, Jesus being truly God and truly man the big you're gonna feel so much smarter for knowing this if you don't already but the big theological term for that is hypostatic union there it is don't you feel great about yourself mm -hmm. the hypostatic union basically it's it's the duality of Christ or Jesus being truly God and truly man. So he's 
He's both and. So Christ's divinity and humanity are united in the same essence or substance. Um, Jesus Christ is truly God, truly man. And um, I'll post um, on the Fellowship Facebook page, I'll post some articles and YouTube videos that kind of talk about this more and explains it much more concisely and probably better than I can. Um, but I'll post those later today so you can, or if you're not on Facebook, let me know. I'll send you the link or whatever. It's fine. But um, yeah, so this is the hypostatic union. He did not regard, he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. So um, I don't want to get ahead of myself here. Yeah, let's look at a little bit more about this uh, equality with God aspect. So we see this in Colossians 1.15 and 19, and then again in Colossians 2.9, it talks about this aspect. So Colossians 1.15 says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Um, the word image there, he's the image of the invisible God, that's where we get our English word icon from. And it's basically Jesus is, um, I think about it like an icon on a computer screen. When you, the icon is not the program. That's where the analogy breaks down. The icon is not the program, but it's just a little picture that when you click on it, it opens up a much bigger program, right? But um, Jesus is our image or our icon for the God, what the God who cannot be seen is like. So God is out there. Nobody's ever seen God at any time, but we've seen Jesus. We can read about Jesus and study Jesus. And so he's our representative, our, he's our image for the invisible God, for God. Um, and then Colossians 1.19 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son. And then Paul explains it further in chapter 2, verse 9. says, For in him all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So Jesus is fully God. He is the not just the image of the invisible God, but he is God. All of God's fullness. God was pleased to have his fullness dwelling in Jesus, in the Son, um, and dwell in him bodily as well. And so this is thinking back to like when we were talking about the uh, the Judaizers and and all the other controversies that were going on, all the false teachings that were starting to creep in, and the Gnostics, how the Gnostics thought, you know, spirit is good, flesh is bad. And so they were they were teaching all these th bad things that people had to basically get past or whatever. So for Jesus to be flesh and man, for God to be in the flesh, that was like just mind-blowing for the Gnostics. They couldn't process that, so they had to come up with some way to process it, and that's how that heresy arose. But Paul is, Paul is nipping that in the bud here in Colossians. He's like... it. It, for in him, the, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Um, so this is the first aspect of the, of the incarnation that we're going to look at, that all of God's fullness dwelt in the Son in bodily form. Uh, and John talks about this in his opening of his gospel. John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. So Jesus was in the beginning with God. He um, says, in the beginning was the Word, pre-existed Christ. The Word was with God, so he's unified with God. And then it says, and the Word was fully God. So, is God, is deity. Jesus is deity. And then later on, in verse 14, John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Now the Word of the Lord became flesh and took up residence among us. 
We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth, who came from the Father. So the Word became flesh. That's the incarnation. Um, I think it's a clear reference to like the Adam Christ um, typology, right? The first Adam comes versus the last Adam when Christ comes. Um, Fee puts it this way. Uh, contrast Adam who considered equality with God something to be seized. Adam tried to become like God by grasping, but Christ, who was God, became man by releasing. So when it says he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, you know, or, or the other versions say did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Um, he he um, he didn't view it as something to be grasped. So. Adam tried to become like God by grasping after the fruit, right? He believed the lie and he grasped after the fruit. Jesus was God and he became man. He didn't he didn't think it was, you know, it wasn't like he's like, oh, I shouldn't I shouldn't be up here. I'm, let's let's let go of this or whatever, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or robbery, but he willingly released that and we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, but he he released some of that in order to become man. And so we get to verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. Uh, man, this is, a, this is a tough text. So Ephesians 4, 7 through 10 says this. This is going to kind of help us understand this better. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he captured captives. He gave gifts to men. Now what is the meaning of he ascended, except that he also descended to the lower regions, namely the earth? He, the very one who descended, is also the one who ascended above all the heavens in order to fill all things. So says he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. This emptied himself uh, is the word kenosis said at the beginning, at the top of the sermon, uh, some people consider the scripture the kenosis passage, right? Kenosis is, it just is a word, it's a Greek word, it just means pouring out. So Christ poured himself out. Um, the uh, New King James says he made himself of no reputation. And so this is the renunciation in his incarnation. So he didn't renounce his deity uh, he didn't get rid of deity, but he sort of veiled certain attributes in that. Uh, Christ didn't empty himself of his godness in order to put on humanity, but he did set aside certain privileges. There's a, there's a few of those. One, his heavenly glory. When he was in heaven with Christ, preexistent Christ, before he came to earth as a baby, um, he had a face-to-face -face relationship with the Father, um, and there was angelic worship. You know, The angels were just praising him all day. And he was up there receiving all of that. And so he, he set that aside. That was a, a certain privilege he set aside. Um, two was he had independent authority. Um, in the incarnation, he completely submitted himself to the will of the Father. But before the incarnation, he had independent authority, right? Um, three, he had divine prerogatives. He set, aside, he set aside the voluntary display of his attributes while he was on earth. So... Um, he never turned stones into bread to feed himself. Remember when he's in the wilderness and the devil was tempting him? He had been fasting out there for a while. He goes to the he didn't turn stones into bread, um, like we discussed in the hymn. Christ didn't turn turn away from the whip or pull himself away 
or off the cross to resist suffering or to relieve himself of suffering. Um, but he prayed in the garden, not my will, my, not my will, but yours be done. And uh, so he set aside the voluntarily the voluntary display of his divine attributes. Every time he performed a miracle, what did he do before he performed it? He prayed. He asked God that God would heal this person or turn this water into wine, or he prayed that this bread or this fish would be multiplied. Whatever it was he was doing, he prayed before he did it. So he set aside those divine prerogatives. He also um, set aside eternal riches. You know, Christ was poor. He lived in the dirt. He traveled around and slept where he could. He was a couch surfer, basically. Um, and he set aside a favorable relationship with God. He had a very favorable relationship, favorable relationship with God, but he set that aside. He felt God's wrath on the cross in a strong way. A.H. Um, Strong puts it this way. says, In a word, he restricted the benefits of his attributes as they pertain to his walk on earth and voluntarily chose not to use his powers to lift himself above ordinary human limitations. And then, I don't know how to say this guy's last name. I think it's Volverd, but it might be Walverd. Uh, but he says this, The act of kenosis, as stated in Philippians 2, may therefore be properly understood to mean that Christ surrendered no attribute of deity, but he did voluntarily restrict their independent use in keeping with his purpose of living among men and their limitations. So Christ became a man in all aspects except sin. He was not sinful. He could not sin. Um, but he came in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. He veiled certain attributes. Um, taking the form of a slave, that's where he uses the word form again, the morph, taking the form of a slave, and we discussed slave back at the beginning of Philippians when Paul talked about how he was a bondservant or a slave for Christ. So he willfully became a slave, and says, and by looking like other men. The looking like other men, that's, that's that other word that Paul could have used instead of form. He looked like other men. He wasn't like, exactly like all of us, right? Because he couldn't sin. But he, he came in flesh. He was incarnate. He was Christ within the flesh. Like chili con carne is chili with meat sauce, you know. You get that on your enchiladas. It's delicious. Um, Jesus was God in flesh. So he was the incarnate Christ. Um, I think we read this before maybe, but we're going to look at it again. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, he became poor for your sakes so that you by his poverty could become rich. So he came, um, although he was rich, he became poor for our sake, so that through his poverty we could become rich, and richness being that we have eternal life in Christ. And he says he took on the form of a slave. Um, we looked at that, looking like other men. Romans 8.3 says, For God achieved what the law could not do, because it was weak through the flesh, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and concerning sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. So he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And then um, the end of my verse 7, and by sharing in human nature, is probably the beginning of your verse 8. You know, the verse, when Paul's writing this, he wasn't breaking up in verses that's not in the original text um, other people put those verse markers there later and so there's a little bit of discussion of where that phrase should go should it go in at the end of seven or the beginning of eight 
just know in my Bible it's in the 7 in my New King James Bible it's in 8 not a big deal that it's either place but that's where it is and so um, the point being made here is that where it says by sharing in human nature um, Christ looked just like other men but he was not like other men he was not sinful um, though he was fully human that's the point that that Paul is making here where it says by sharing in human nature so then we get to verse 8 uh, yeah no yeah verse 8 He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, This is the crucifixion. So we have the renunciation, the incarnation, now we get to the crucifixion. And this is the the bottom of his humiliation. We talk about this being the humiliation of Christ, this text. This is the ultimate part of it. I mean, it's kind of leading us down that way as we follow it. You know, he was... He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, came in the form of a slave, looking like other men, sharing in human nature. That is not a that's not a good thing. You know, it's not like he's bragging like, oh, he looked like other men, he shared in human nature. No, this is this is like a, a disgrace. You know, think about who is man. You know, Adam, we'll take him because he already related that to us. Adam was a man, came from dust, he lived, he disobeyed. So God had to push him out of the garden, and then he had to suffer and work, which is terrible. We hate doing that. Thanks a lot, Adam. But he had to suffer and work, and now he dies and becomes dust again, right? To, to say that he looked like other men, shared a human nature, um, you know, this is just, this is like saying he came and looked like dust. You know, this the lowest form of the substance we have on earth, the stuff that we sweep up and throw away, this is what Christ came and made himself as, is, is dust. We are nothing but dust. And so that's how that's how he came. This is not this is not like speaking highly of him. This is a humiliating thing for Christ to have to come and do in the incarnation. And he did it for us. And it says he didn't just do this. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. The cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. You know, they they thought anybody that was going to die on a cross was cursed. And so, you know, they could have at any point stoned Jesus. They could have said the Jews did that. They did it to Stephen, right? In Acts chapter 6, or 7, rather, Stephen preached this great sermon. They drug him out, and they stoned him to death. They could have done that with Jesus. They didn't need the Romans to come and do that. That was been a just killing for them according to their laws and everything um, but they didn't because they wanted Jesus had followers and they wanted Jesus to represent the curse of the cross that the cross conveyed to everyone and so Jesus took on the cross he took on that curse he became the curse for us first um, Corinthians 1 23 says but we preach about a crucified Christ a stumbling block to the Jews and foolish foolishness to Gentiles and then Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Uh, not a huge fan of Warren Wiersbe, but this is a good quote, so we're going we're gonna to look at it. Um, it says, uh, the test of, submit, of the submissive mind is not just how much we're willing to take in terms of suffering, 
but how much we were willing to give in terms of sacrifice. So that's the true test. So if we're supposed to follow Christ's example here, He is is our example. We're supposed to have the same attitude toward one another that Jesus had. Jesus humiliated Himself for us. He became a man, even to the point of becoming a slave, looking like other men, humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and He suffered all those things. Um, And that's the example that we're supposed to follow. Um, and then the next three verses are the upside of that U diagram. We'll look at that again, I think. Yeah, there we go. So upside of that U diagram, going up to the exaltation, the exalted position, adoration, confession. So you have the preexistent glory and his humiliation down all the way to crucifixion and back up to the glory of God the Father. So let's look at those verses. And really, um, to look at these, I want to look at the full context. We're not going to go through verse 18, but I do want to start back at Romans 1.27 and kind of get this last three verses, 9 through 11, in full context of, of all of this. I think it's really good. So I want to take the time to do that. It says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent, I should hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind by contending side by side for the faith of the gospel and not by and by not being intimidated in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God. For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him, since you are encountering the same conflict that you saw me face and now hear that I am facing. Therefore... If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in Spirit and having one purpose. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interest, but about the interest of others as well. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, I almost want to pray again after that. So there's a lot of correlation here in these verses uh, with verses 1 through 4 specifically. Um, Verse 1 through 4 give an overall picture of like-mindedness and then... Verse 5 here says we should have the same attitude that Christ had. Verse 3 says that we should consider others more important than ourselves. Some versions say it as count or regard. We should count others or regard others. Um, And verse 6 says that Christ did not count, consider, regard equality with God as something to be grasped. He didn't didn't count it robbery to be equal with God. Uh, Verse 3 also says that we should not be motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, uh, but in humility uh, we should be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. 
And then verse 8, he says that Jesus humbled himself, became obedient, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then as a result of this, God highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name. Uh, as a result, is in, in your Bible, it may be therefore. Um, and what we talk about when we say, when there's a therefore in the Bible, you got to look back and see what it's there for. And, and we just saw what it's there for. It's 4, 127 through basically verse 8. That's what it's there for. As a result of Christ's humiliation, a result of that, he gave him. So as a result, God highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name. Um, the fact that God exalted Christ here is, uh, that's a, I mean, it's a hard thing to explain in and of itself. That What does that mean that? God glorified Christ because you know it's different from from us when we die and we've talked about this before the final step in that process of sanctification or in the order of salvation the final process final step in that is after we die glorification we, we go to heaven and we're in this glorified state we're, we're in a different new body and all that that's that's our final step that's not the same as God exalting Christ or God glorifying Christ here. That's a different thing. He he didn't um, he didn't get a new body like you know we we did. In fact, he still has the same body he had when he was on earth. I'm sure you've heard it said the only man-made thing in all of heaven are the scars on Jesus's back or whatever. You know, I think that's a. I mean, people might forget about Elijah in that scenario. I think he's man-made and he ascended to heaven the same way on a chariot of fire, but. Um, I don't know. That, I think that's picking here. I think it's a, a nice way to think about it for sure. Is that um, Jesus is Jesus's ascension to everything? But um, John seventeen one through five speaks on this a little bit more. It says, "When Jesus had finished saying these things, he looked upward to heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, so that your Son may glorify you, just as you have given him authority over all humanity, so that he may give eternal life to everyone." You have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me at your side with the glory I had with you before the world was created. So, if there was a pouring out or a kenosis or a veiling of certain um, things, all that the veil came off. The glorification of Jesus is that the veil was removed. And Jesus was returned at the right hand of God, right? That's that's where that's where he to his pre-existent state, I guess. Um, the writer of Hebrews speaks to the extent that the sun radiates in his glory. This is Hebrews one one through four. It says after God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets, in these last days he has spoken to us in a son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he created the world. The Son is the radiance of his glory and the representation of his essence, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. And so when we had so when he had accomplished cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thus he became so far better than the angels and has inherited a name superior to theirs. Think about... Uh, this idea that Jesus has the name that is above every name. Um, it says every knee will bow. This is uh, this is our adoration and confession. 
every knee is going to bow. It says, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. Uh, every knee is going to bow. Whether we whether people accept Christ now in this life and choose to bow to Him, or whether they die and face the reality of hell, the you know hell is a terrible place. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, fire. Uh, I guess the devil has a has a little splintery tail he's poking people with. I don't I don't know what the devil actually. I don't think he looks like the red creature that we picture him looking like. But you know. Um, and my vision of that is usually mostly from Looney Tune cartoons, but anyway, um, I don't think that that's how um, the devil. But it's a terrible place. But the worst part of hell, on top of all the torment and everything else, is you're in hell, and you finally know whether you're on earth you're an atheist or agnostic or a Buddhist or whatever, whatever religion you choose chose to follow, you get to hell and you're there, and you know the truth that God is God, that Jesus is Lord, and you have to still confess that He is Lord. That doesn't mean that, that people are going to bow down and, and all of a sudden be saved. They're going to have to face the eternal torment, and eternal hell, but in that state, they're going to know, and that being eternally separated from God forever and knowing the truth about it, that's the real hell that people will have to face. And that should, that should motivate us more to go and tell... Um, R.G. Lee um, said, said it this way. He says, Every knee should bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. One day everyone will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. The only question is whether they will do it in time by faith and thereby become a part of the family of God or do it on the day of the Lord and be judged by Him. I guarantee you, we do not, we do not want to be judged by Him. Um, actually, I don't think that was R.G. Lee. I don't know where I got that quote. Sorry. This is, our, this is what R.G. Lee said. This is equally as good, I think. It says, The name of Jesus occupies a singular place of supremacy above all the names in his universe. Jesus is without peer in his character and in his name. God has given him a name above every other name. If you piled up all the notable names on, at, of Earth's finest people until you had a mountain of human greatness higher than Everest, the greatness of the glory of the name of Jesus would have to descend a million miles downward to touch the top of the, this anthill we call human greatness. Man. So he has a name far greater than all of our names. Says, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This idea that Jesus Christ is Lord is um, it's a doctrine that Peter really develops a lot more in, in his letters. Um, but the Lordship of Christ. And I said before um, concerning the Lordship of Christ, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the Lordship of Christ said, um, you know, as far as we us making Christ our Lord, the Lordship of Christ, He's either president or He's not resident. So He's either Lord of your life or He's not in your life. And so in making Christ Lord of our life is us submitting to Him. And we follow that the example that he gave when he came to earth and he submitted to the Father. That was his his way. I'll, I'll close with this verse, Romans 10, 9. It says, But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So every tongue will confess. Um, so if you haven't done this, if you haven't confessed that Jesus is Lord, uh, you can do it today. Um, you, can, you can be saved. 
I think it's a good thing. Um, you know, I, I don't do this often. I should do it more, but um, the gospel is very simple. You know, we're we're sinners and we need a savior. Um, you know, we we all we all need a savior. Um, we didn't have to we didn't have to learn how to sin. Nobody taught us how to sin, as the old preacher I used to have said. Um, I always liked how he put it. You know, no, nobody had to teach you how to sin. That comes about very naturally for us. We're really good at sinning, um, but uh, we need a Savior. And so um, it's easy to do that. Like Romans 10 now says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And it can't be much simpler than that right there. Um, we all need a Savior, and Jesus is um, the only way. He's the only Savior. It's not a good way, but He is the way. And so... Um, I would encourage you in that. So, man, I feel like uh, even though we went pretty in depth in that, I feel like we could go through this for like the next eight weeks and and talk about stuff that we didn't get a chance to talk about and all this. But, um, man, this this text is good. Um, there's a lot there. Uh, sorry, sorry, it wasn't. That illustrative, or I didn't tell many stories about my personal life, or, or things like that. But um, I think the the text itself to to just really teach on that was was much more worth it. Um, the example that we have in Jesus is way better than the example or personal illustration I could have given you anyway. Um, so let's let's pray, and then uh, we'll sing another song after that. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for thank you for your word. I thank you for the wonderful blessing that we have that, that you would come to earth, God with us, Emmanuel, that you came and you descended down and you gave us a great example to follow, Lord. I pray that you'll help us be humble people and to treat each other the way that you treated us. As, as Aaron read, when Christ washed the disciples' feet, Lord, I pray that that would be the kind of example we follow that you gave for us. You know, we, we can't go and be crucified for people. We're not a, a worthy sacrifice, but and it's already been done. You don't require any other sacrifice, Lord. Uh, but you do ask us to serve you and serve others, and so I pray that you will give us the strength and give us the opportunity to serve those around us um, by following after your example. And ultimately, Lord, I pray that you are glorified in all of it, just like uh, verse 11 ended out, that this is to the glory of God the Father. So we pray that you'll be glorified through, through all our deeds and worship and actions. Help us to keep that in mind, to be glorifying to you. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.